Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fastman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Domestic transmission of polio in America ended in the late 1970s, just 25 years after the vaccine was developed. But the disease has returned in Britain and America. We'll discuss why and how concerned you should be. And you might have heard of Pink Sauce, an eminently Instagrammable product born in a TikToker's kitchen. Sales swiftly shot up, and what happened next became a lesson both for online buyers and for sellers navigating a thicket of confusing rules. But first... Since Russia invaded Ukraine more than six months ago, many thousands of Ukrainian civilians have died, and more than six and a half million have fled. But the invasion's effects are being felt well beyond Ukrainian borders. It has contributed to an energy crisis, with the cost of oil and gas soaring on global markets. Yesterday, Germany unveiled a 65 billion euro package to tackle the problem, with other European countries expected to follow suit. It came shortly after Russia said it was suspending gas exports to Germany through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline indefinitely. And the war has added to a rise in the cost of food. At least 14 million people are forced to skip a meal a day because they simply cannot afford to buy a plate of food. Food has definitely gone up a lot. I just bought groceries, and usually what happens to be like about $130 was like $200. Um, Food prices are at near record highs. Fertilizer prices have more than doubled, sounding an alarm everywhere. But there may be a morsel of good news. So when Russian tanks rolled over the border of eastern Ukraine at the end of February, the price of agricultural produce around the world surged. Mike Bird is The Economist's Asia business and finance editor. And that was largely because Ukraine was the fifth largest exporter of wheat in 2020. Russia was the largest exporter of wheat in the world that year and most years. And they were both also large exporters of sunflower oil, which is used for cooking in a lot of different places. So there were worries that the supply of both Russian and Ukrainian agricultural commodities would be heavily disrupted by the war. But what actually ended up happening was not really uh, in line with that expectation. So how do you mean? What was the expectation and how did reality differ from it? Well, the cost of a lot of grains, cereals and edible oils are now back to their pre-war levels, or in some cases, uh, as with palm oil, they're actually below their pre-war levels already. Chicago wheat futures for delivery in December 
are now around $8 a bushel. That's down from over $12, almost $13 a bushel that they were at three months ago. Corn is back to the price it was at before the war began. Uh, Indonesia temporarily banned the export of palm oil. The government was so worried about the price surging domestically and causing issues there. A few months later, Indonesia is now struggling to sell the palm oil that it's warehoused. You've got analysts describing the government as sort of distress seller. That is how much things have changed just in the past few months. What explains this price drop? Does it have to do with the agreements to resume and provide safe passage of shipments from Ukraine's Black Sea port? So in the context that that deal is obviously a great thing to get some of the very large stockpiles of Ukrainian wheat and other produce moving, we can't actually account for this move because of that deal. What this is much more likely to be to do with is the strength of Russian wheat exports. And tell us about that strength. What is happening with Russian wheat exports? So far from being disrupted, the U.S. Department of Agriculture suggests that Russia will export a record 42 million tons of wheat in the 2022-2023 year, which runs from July to June. That's 2 million tons more than the previous 12-month period. Russia's had a, a bumper wheat harvest, particularly good weather for wheat in Russia this year. And there's obviously strong demand from this. And a lot of the countries that buy wheat from Russia are relatively neutral towards the war. There's a lot of countries in Asia, in North Africa, in the Middle East. They consume a lot of wheat, they import a lot of wheat, and I think in large part they're not willing to reduce their exposure to Russian wheat exports on political ground. So that side of things really hasn't been disrupted very much at all, and it's made up for the fact that Ukrainian wheat exports this year, even with the deal agreed, are going to be considerably lower than they were last year. So this sounds like a good outcome for much of the world, but how do we explain, how do you explain the disparity between what people expected to happen and what actually happened? I think there's a few things to explain it. I think one is that financial markets are often not very good at conflict-related things. These things are very, very difficult to price. They're they're sort of one-off events. There's never been a war of this scale in this exact part of the world in the era of mass trading of agricultural commodity futures. So this is really new for everyone. And I think what has probably happened here is that people knew about the gas and oil disruptions, which very much have been a result of the conflict. And they've just extrapolated that across to wheat because it is something else that Ukraine and Russia produce So there's some people who suggest that traders got sort of mixed up between these two types of disruption. They were thinking that the Russian-Ukrainian supply issues would be the same, which as we've explained, they're not Ukrainian supply. It's very much reduced. Russian supply is not. But there's also some people who suggest that the, the absolute size of the futures market in agricultural commodities leads to speculative activity that raises the volatility levels here. There's too many people engaging in commodity market futures trading who don't have an underlying economic reason to do so. And that would be people who need to hedge against actual real-world exposures. If there's too many people engaging in entirely speculative behavior that doesn't have that sort of fundamental route, some people think that the prices can get unpegged from sort of normal fundamental levels a little more easily. And so as the prices of commodities fall, should we expect a reduction in the, in the prices of the food that we buy and eat? 
Well, this is a slightly difficult one because all things being equal, wheat prices being lower, wheat futures being lower, for example, should reduce the cost of food globally, and it will do so eventually. But there's some caveats to that, one of which is that Food prices were already extremely high by historical standards before the war began. We've written extensively about high food prices going back into last year and before. There's a lot of places where the moves in the currency market this year will be a problem too. The US dollars climbed a lot this year. When we're talking about wheat, corn, palm oil prices all being back to or below where they were before, we're talking about those prices in dollars. So if you're somewhere like Turkey, the lira is down double digits against the dollar this year. The Egyptian pound, similar story. These countries are two of the three largest wheat importers in the world. So they are still paying more for the wheat than they were before. So I think there's some serious caveats to the fact, and it will take some time for these sort of futures prices to feed through. And there'll be a lot of regional variation too. And Mike, a little earlier in the segment, you mentioned oil and gas prices. Those obviously are inputs in commodity production. Is the fact that those prices of oil and gas are still high, is that going to impede a drop in food prices? Yeah, it is. So the oil and gas prices feed through into food prices in the same way that they feed through to everything else. There is one particular area in agriculture that's of interest, which is the price of fertilizers. Now, a lot of nitrogen-based fertilizers rely on natural gas, not for energy, but as a direct input into the fertilizer. So prices of fertilizers are going through the roof because natural gas prices are going through the roof. As we discussed, the higher fertilizer costs go, the more you'll expect that to feed through to agricultural commodity prices. There's also a risk that some farmers in some parts of the world stop using fertilizers or use far less fertilizer, which will mean in the years to come that you see significantly reduced crop yields. That's the worst case scenario there. And that would also see prices going high because people are still going to need wheat and there'll be less of it to go around. So if you look at natural gas prices in Europe in particular, they're still hitting fresh record highs which suggests that the conflict in Ukraine may still have more knock-on effects for global food prices yet to come. All right, Mike, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks very much, John. And this week's Money Talks, our sister show on business, finance, and economics, will be looking at the war's influence on the energy crisis and asking what can be done about it. Money Talks is available from wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. John Broadbent was about 19 when he caught polio, and he's typical of many. In the early stages, there's often not much to distinguish polio from some other diseases. Well, John can't quite kiss his knees, whereas he used to be able to quite easily. Polio is a disease that can lead to lifelong problems of mobility, or even to paralysis. It can also kill. 
there's no cure, and during the first half of the 20th century, it swept the world. Children were commonly affected, but adults got it too. Franklin Roosevelt, an American president, contracted polio at the age of 39. He relied on walking aids in a wheelchair throughout the rest of his life. But by the 1950s, a vaccine had been developed. Continued progress in the battle against polio is signaled with the start of large-scale tests of a new vaccine. It was a huge success. And then the joyous news. The soft vaccine had proved itself to be safe, effective, and potent in preventing polio. A global vaccination program largely eradicated the disease. The Americas were rid of it by the 1990s, Europe by 2002, and Nigeria, the last African country where it was endemic was declared polio-free in 2020, but the disease is making an unexpected return. In June, a 20-year-old man was paralyzed by polio in a suburb of New York City. So it is now clear that polio has returned to America and also parts of Europe. Slaveya Chankova is The Economist's health correspondent. For years, the virus had remained endemic in only small parts of Afghanistan and Pakistan, but wastewater samples in London and New York now show that poliovirus is circulating there. And this is the first time in decades that the virus has been seen in those countries. But it's important to note that this is not the wild type of the virus. How is this polio strain different then? The type of the virus detected in London and New York is a vaccine-derived strain. It's a rare mutation originating from the oral polio vaccine. That vaccine contains a weakened strain of the live poliovirus, and it's typically used in poorer countries. In the Western countries, we are using a jab, which is different. It's based on an inactivated or killed poliovirus. Why would a live virus be used in poor countries if there's an inactivated strain available? Well, first, it's a lot cheaper and easier to administer. You just have to put a couple of drops in a child's mouth rather than administer an injection. But also, a person who takes the oral vaccine can actually transmit immunity through so-called passive inoculation. So what happens is they shed the weakened virus in their stools for a few weeks after vaccination, and then if an unvaccinated person ingests those particles of the virus, which is something that's common in places with poor sanitation, where people come across water that's not been purified, that second person becomes inoculated too. But the problem is that this sort of benefit comes with a high risk, because if the vaccine-derived virus continues to circulate among unvaccinated people, it gradually mutates into a form that actually resembles the original wild strain. So it becomes a paralyzing form of the virus. Now, this process of mutation normally takes about a year or so, so it has to circulate for quite a bit of time to acquire those mutations. And once it mutates into this dangerous form, the virus can cause paralysis in about one in a thousand infected people. If Europe and America don't use the live virus vaccine, why is the disease circulating there? Well, it's been imported, and the way it happens is that outbreaks of vaccine-derived polio are still going on in parts of Africa because of insufficient rates of vaccination. 
And there are also occasional outbreaks in parts of Asia and the Eastern Mediterranean. So that's where the oral vaccine has been used to control outbreaks. And it is from one of those three regions that the poliovirus that's now circulating in London and New York was probably imported. Now, polio is spreading in those two cities, primarily when people ingest particles from the stool of an infected person. And you may ask, you know, how it happens in in places with pretty decent sanitation. Well, if someone who's infected does not wash their hands after using the toilet or a caregiver fails to do so after changing the nappy of an infected child, they can pass on the virus by touching food or other objects, for example, toys that other children may put in their mouth, and also through handshakes. So, So that's how it's spreading. It's quite contagious, so you don't need large amounts. Now, both the oral and the inactivated vaccine prevent paralysis, but they're unfortunately not particularly good at stopping this kind of transmission. Now, what this means is that some vaccinated people in London and New York may be, in fact, part of those polio transmission chains that are going on. But they really should underscore that both vaccines are highly effective against paralysis. Uh, The effectiveness is more than 99%. Effective as they may be, it sounds like transmission could be tricky to halt. How worried should we be? Well, vaccination rates are quite high in general in both New York and London, but there are pockets where they're not as high as you would like. So the worry is that polio will reach unvaccinated children and some of them may become paralyzed, even though that happens on very rare occasions. So the priority now is to vaccinate children quickly. And we saw, in fact, that the young man who was paralyzed in America had not been vaccinated. But vaccination can still help a little bit to slow down transmission, even though it cannot alone stop it entirely. And that's because unvaccinated people are far more likely to pass the disease on because they shed the virus in higher amounts than people who are vaccinated. So the vaccines do have a somewhat protective effect. Now, what we're seeing in London, for example, is that the boroughs where wastewater samples have the most poliovirus are, in fact, those with the lowest polio vaccination rates. So that does say something about the protection of vaccines. What is essential now is basically to protect children from paralysis by vaccinating them before the virus reaches them. When you find one case of paralysis, what that means is there is a lot of hidden circulation of the virus going on. So this is the big worry now in London and New York. But is the risk of vaccine-derived polio outbreak something we'll just have to live with from now on? Well, hopefully not. And here is why in 2020, the World Health Organization approved a new form of the oral polio vaccine. It contains a type of poliovirus that has been genetically engineered to prevent it from becoming harmful. And that new vaccine has been used in more than 20 countries in Africa and Asia for mass vaccination campaigns in polio outbreaks. And the results are looking good. It does indeed appear not to have these rare mutations as the older oral vaccine. So hopefully as supplies of this new vaccine increase, it will fully replace the older oral vaccine and that eventually will prevent further emergence of those vaccine-derived strains. But for now, the strains that are already circulating in New York and London 
are a bit of a worry because we know that those are two of the world's busiest travel hubs. So the virus may be spreading far and wide. All right, Slavea, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. Pink Sauce was created by a Miami-based chef. She calls herself Chef P on social media. And the sauce gets its striking colour from red dragon fruit. It went viral after Chef P started posting videos of herself, putting it on various food. Today, I have my pink sauce and some Kentucky Fried Chicken. And of course, I'm about to drench it up. Soon after that, she decided to sell the sauce. And when she announced that she would be shipping it from her home kitchen, some of her intrigued followers decided to purchase it. Holly Berman is a social media editor at The Economist. A lot of people say it's more like a sweeter version of ranch dressing, but much more expensive as well. A bottle of pink sauce costs $20. Which, for a sauce, is a lot. Were people happy with that? So the main thing that alarmed people was that the sauce's signature shade was altering with each batch. So if you go back to older videos, it's this kind of flamingo pink, Pepto-Bismol pink shade. And then by the time people are reviewing it, it's much lighter, paler, and in some ways less appetizing. And concerns about safety were also raised following allegations that the sauce, which contains dairy ingredients, lacked proper preservatives and was exploding in the post. Pictures of misprinted food labels on the bottles started going viral. She misspelt vinegar on one of the labels and that started doing the rounds on social media as well. So we've got um, badly labeled food that explodes in the post. Um, it's, it's worth asking why she was allowed to do this in the first place. Aren't there rules? The laws are confusing. So it was once forbidden to sell homemade food for profit in America. That has changed with the gradual adoption of what's called cottage food laws. These are supposed to help small producers. So broadly, they allow people to sell food from home without a permit. if They follow local regulations, permitted products and delivery methods, such as whether food can be sold online, at farmers markets or shipped to other states, differ between states. Some states require inspections before the launch and others also enforce sales caps. But on the whole, most people can sell non-potentially hazardous food products such as baked goods and jams. Unfortunately for pink sauce, condiments are not permitted under Florida's law. So Chef P has paused her sales and now says she'll be complying with Food and Drug Administration guidelines. Right, so it's not so much she broke the rules as didn't know she was falling foul of them? Yeah, that's right. So it seems that she wasn't quite aware of these rules. There's a clip of her saying that she didn't need FDA approval because her product is not a medical product, which then went viral on Twitter, adding fuel to the fire. But for other people that don't sell pink sauce, the rules have broadened since the pandemic. So last year, a record 51 new bills were introduced to expand exemptions across America. So in October, for instance, New Jersey became the final state to introduce cottage food laws. And Oklahoma is among those that has also recently allowed interstate delivery in some circumstances. And then looser rules have also encouraged more people to start a cottage food operation. In New York State, it's been reported that 1,538 new home producers registered in 2020, up from 986 in 2019. 
So how much is, is the story of pink sauce a kind of TikTok anomaly and how much does it represent the kinds of challenges that, that people trying to make and sell food really face? Yeah, so there are a lot of examples of businesses like this one going viral on TikTok. And the problem is, is it can be great if they find their fame on social media, but particularly with food, home chefs can feel a lot of pressure to meet demand quickly. In the case of Pink Sauce, perhaps she then had to cut some corners to hit the sales numbers. I spoke to Chloe Sexton, who's a baker. She said she had to learn how to scale up her cookie business, which is called Bluff Cakes, to operate outside of her state extremely quickly after her creations went viral on TikTok. She believes that states could be doing more to educate small business owners. Another business I spoke to had to hire additional help to understand the rules. So if you're kind of just starting out as a small business and you accidentally go viral on TikTok, you have to sort of learn very quickly. And if you have the resources to do so, that's great. And if you don't, then it can quite quickly lead to disaster. Did you get a chance to try the pink sauce? <laughs> Unfortunately not. I was asked to to try it. Um, it was sold out. It was probably a good thing. I mean, she's relaunching the business in partnership with a commercial source producer. They have ambitions for it to hit supermarket shelves. So you never know. I might try it once it goes past FDA approval. Holly, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from The Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.